1: Hola, mi gente. ¿Qué pasa? It's your girl, Odalis Jasmine, and y'all are listening to Hella Latino. Today I'm talking to Ruben Quesada, a writer, a poet, professor, and proud Costa Rican. Hashtag Pura Vida. Ruben is the editor of Latinx Poetics, Essays on the Art of Poetry. In 2019, with poet Spencer Reese, he established the Lorca Poetry Prize to honor the connection to the Spanish language. This prize is in the name of Federico Garcia Lorca, celebrating his life and legacy, and also serves to globalize the U.S. Latinx poetry. In April, Ruben launched a nonprofit called Mercy Street. It's a literary arts nonprofit which develops programming to promote creativity, critical thinking, and empathy through literature. He's done so so much more, and he's going to tell you all about it in this podcast. He is really putting our people on through poetry. Let's hear more about his story, Deuna. Welcome, Ruben, to the podcast. I I'm so excited. I don't know if you know this about me, and I think the folks listening probably don't know this either. But I love writing poetry as well as reading poetry, and so to sit here with you and talk about your story, unpack your story, unpack your love of poetry. I'm really excited. So welcome to the podcast and welcome to the space.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I know that um, it's been a little difficult. We've been really busy and, and I'm glad today is finally here. I love listening to your podcast. I especially love the video component of it. It's really fun to just watch your conversations back and forth. It just looks like a lot of fun. So I'm, I've been really looking forward to this.
1: It is going to be so fun. I want to start with the first question. Ruben, how do you identify and why?
0: That's a great question. I like to say that I'm Latinx. I don't know if that would make any sense to my family if I were to go back home and say I'm part of the Latinx community. Um, My mom and my sisters would probably say, what are you talking about? What language is that? I think that depending on the situation, I would either say I'm Latinx or I'm Latino. I know that there's a big move toward other types of ways to identify and and i really like the x at the end even though there's been a lot of discussion about you know you can't say that it doesn't work in spanish but if i'm talking to my mom for instance who i talk to in spanish all the time i would just say i'm latino soy latino or costarricense my family's from costa rica and so that that would probably make more sense to my family at home and my mom especially but yeah i like saying that i'm latinx
1: I love that as you're telling this story, it feels like that first generation story of in my family, if you're asking, if they're asking me how I identify, it's one way. And then outside of my family, it's this ebb and flow, right? You're talking about being from Costa Rica. Shout out, Central Americanos. Um, My parents, fun fact, they, I don't remember them, but we had this huge Central American community that we grew up around, but I was a baby, so I don't really remember But there was a ton of Costa Ricans and they would always throw the best parties along with my mom's, of course. But it was always like a competition. Oh, who's going to go to Berta's party? Who's going to go to the Costa Rican party? And I wish I could remember that moment in life. But I want to talk about your Costa Rican roots because I love hearing this immigration story, this first generation story of you owning both your roots and owning this navigation of American culture whatever that means for you. So if we're talking about your Costa Rican roots, where did that story be begin? Did you immigrate? Did your parents immigrate? Grandparents? Where did that story start?
0: Yeah, that's a that's wow that's a tough question because a lot of it is still a bit nebulous to me. And it's funny that you talk you say that Costa Ricans do the best parties. every time I'm with friends or coworkers or colleagues and we're out somewhere, they always say that I'm the life of the party and I don't know why it must be in our blood. <laughs> So it's good to hear. But my my mom and I have two older sisters. They're far older than me, like seven and 10 years older. I'm the youngest of three. My mom moved to Los Angeles from Costa Rica just before I was born. So the story goes that my mom was pregnant and left Costa Rica to come and join her sister and brother who were already in, in LA. And so she arrived. And so I was born about a month or two after my family immigrated here, and I don't there are so many pictures of me just like in diapers wandering around like tons of family, and I can't, I can't remember any of it. I, I know that there are some people who have such clear, vivid uh, memories of their childhood, and I don't remember any of it. And apparently, when I was three, my family all went back to Costa Rica so that my family could meet me. And I don't remember any of it, but <laughs> I do remember that for growing up, every summer my grandmother would come and visit. And I, there are so many pictures of her. And I do remember that. And I remember most clearly the summers that she would visit when I was like between the ages of six and eight. And there are a lot of pictures during that time. And I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant to be Costa Rican. I grew up in, in LA in this city called Bell. Which is right next to Huntington Park. And so it's a very dense community of mostly Mexican and Central American people. And I knew that Spanish was part of our culture, and it was something that I spoke with my family at home. And I would hear it occasionally at school from my classmates. But other than just knowing that, Spanish was something I did and we ate a lot of a lot of rice and black beans like that was the thing it's gallopinto, pinto and, and right plantains pinto yeah yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean so like food was something that I knew was just like I knew that's what we ate my neighbor our, or our neighbor growing up was this Chinese family who had immigrated from Nicaragua and so it was like this like convergence of cultures. It was wild.
1: I love that you mentioned that because I actually have a friend who is Chinese Nicaragüense, and he talks about just the community, the Chinese community that exists in Nicaragua. And also there's a big Chinese community in Honduras and just Central America in general. And there's a joke that my family has, and I'm curious if your family has this too, but my family always says, el quien le gusta la comida china. Because every Honduran that you will meet they love Chinese food. It's like su <laughs> Like it's the food of, oh, the lujo. Like we're going to go eat some Chinese food for the family <laughs> party <laughs> or if you want to go out to eat. And there's this really dope place. I don't know the name of it. It's in San Diego. And we used to go there. And I kid you not, Ruben, The staff didn't know any English, but they knew Spanish. They knew Chinese and Spanish. They they couldn't tell you a lot of words in English, but they know how to speak to all of their customers who were all Latinos in that line.
0: (laughs) I believe that. I believe it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's wild. Like They spoke to my family, my mom and everyone in the community in Spanish, but they really didn't speak any English. I can't say that I, I remember my friend's parents ever speaking english but i could hear them very clearly speaking spanish yeah but yeah i've never heard that phrase i've never heard that before about chinese food and that's pretty yeah. wild that's pretty it's wild. very
1: and that's the one thing i love about our community is how deeply diverse and complex and beautiful and just this mosaic of cultures and sasson and colors and shapes, and size, like literally we're this mosaic of culture. And I think it's, it's beautiful to hear this journey of yours and like growing up with a Chinese neighbor and who is from Nicaragua and you yourself kind of understanding where is my place as a Costa Rican Latino, right? Is it I eat gallo pinto and then I speak Spanish or what does that mean? And what was that journey for you? Did you grow closer to your Costa Rican roots or did you almost experiences pan latinidad, you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to think about when I you know when I think about how much time I spent with, with my friend and, and his family who only spoke Cantonese at home and I started picking up certain words. And even though I would always ask them to teach me things to say, my friend growing up, we met in kindergarten and so we were friends like through high school and I remember going to their house every day after school, and most of the time I would end up having dinner there too. And it was delicious. I knew that no matter where I had dinner, I was going to have rice. That was like a given. <laughs> and, and then it was like, okay, well, what's gonna pair this? It, it exposed me to so much different types of, of food culture. Like just mm. food was just incredible. Like duck, chicken, fish. Like these things that I would probably never have had at home. And so I grew up trying like these different foods and feeling like I was part of this Chinese family. And sadly, my mother was a single mother and she was working all the time. And so I found myself really connecting with this Chinese family and, and feeling like I was part of their family. But but I could never speak Cantonese. I, I just couldn't do it. And so I would speak to I would speak to my friends' parents in Spanish, and they would speak to me in Spanish, and then. So it was like always Spanish being spoken in like family spaces, even though it was like, this is my Costa Rican family, this is my Chinese family, but we all speak Spanish. It was really cool. And I connected more with the Chinese family. Like they just, they were so tight and it was a big family of five children. It's almost like they just didn't, they just didn't notice there was an extra one. And then that was me. (laughs) I was like the extra child. And it was cool. It was really cool. But it wasn't until I went to Costa Rica when I was 10, that I really understood like what it meant to to be Costa Rican.
1: Oh, oh, tell me about that time. You're 10 years old. (laughs) I'm like, what were we all doing at 10 years old? This is like right before middle school, right? What a moment.
0: Oh my goodness. What a moment. I had never left the United States and I grew up in a community that spoke primarily Spanish. And if you're from Central America, you know that just like the mosaic of food and cultural backgrounds, there's also a very distinct sense of Spanish depending on where you come from. Like you can hear it, right?
1: Yes, 100%. So that's beautiful. You're 10 years old, you're in Costa Rica, and you're realizing that. Do you realize that you're just a little different than folks that may look like you? And you're like, wait, I'm Costa Rican, but there's a difference here in how we've lived and how we experience our Latinidad.
0: Yeah, it, it was different. There was just like this ease. I don't know. There was like this ease about living there. Like it was just... Everyone was happy. I mean, not to say that nobody was happy where I was growing up, but there was just like, there was this like sense of just being relaxed. Like I it never appeared like anyone had, it wasn't like a go kind of culture, um, which I feel like living in the United States can be like, um, it just feels like we're always kind of going. Uh, you know, like my mother was always working. My sisters were always like uh, at school or, or at a job. And I just remember being in Costa Rica, and like my grand, my grandmother was home. She lived with one of my one of my tias when they had kids, and everyone was just like always present, and like everyone was just chatty. Like I just remember a lot of talking, and I never felt alone in the way that I guess in, in everyone in L.A. was always doing something, and there was a lot of alone time for me. It was nice, so I did feel like. Are these people just did they take off because I'm visiting? Or is this just like, <laughs> this is just life here? It was interesting, but that was it. That was life yeah. there. Everyone just kind of took it easy and they went to work, but, but they really valued like being home and being with their family and, and interacting. And it was, always felt when they were out of the house for work, like they left it. As soon as they came back home, it was like they became a different person. It was great.
1: Did, what did that moment do for you? In terms of, did it influence the way you live your life now, the way you see your life now? Like, how did it influence you? Because it's such a powerful thing. Like you said, you never felt alone and you saw this different pace of life and this different, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just this different warmth, right? This different way of living. What did that do for a 10-year-old Ruben?
0: Well, it's something that I witnessed my mom doing a lot. I think that because of the circumstances where she was raising a family on her own those circumstances i think occupied a lot of her time but when she wasn't working i did witness that kind of that sense of solidarity that sense of wanting to connect with those that are closest to you and it, i think what it what it did to me or how i've embodied that is that i always want to feel like the people who are around me are part of the world part of like they're seen like they're included they're seen there's this big there's been this big move like in recent years to for like diversity equity and inclusion and and for people wanting to recognize the role that others play however minor or major everyone comes at a situation kind of equitably and treated equitably and and that's what it felt like when i was in costa rica and that's what i observed my mom doing is just like making people feel like they belonged and making people feel like they're seen, they're valued, their presence is of importance, mm-hmm. no matter who they are. And I have this memory, like shortly after I came back from that visit in Costa Rica, I remember like playing on our main street. Like there was a big street that ran through the whole city and it was a, kind of a busy street, but you know, my friends and I would, would we'd either like bike around the block or play on the sidewalk. And there was like a, this hit and run happened. And this young girl was crossing the street and got hit. And it was, I mean, it, it there was so much commotion. And all I remember is seeing my mother run out into the street and to pick this girl up and I have this image of my mother holding this young girl and helping her like get out of the street and just consoling her until mm-hmm. medical help arrived. And, like, I've never forgotten that moment. She didn't know who this was. Like, I don't even remember seeing this girl before. But there was my mother, like, right there. She was the first one there to help her. And it just, it really, I think, embodied, like, that idea that no matter who it is, you're there for someone when they need them. And that's, I think that's what I felt when I was in Costa Rica, is that everyone was there for each other. And I think I do that now when I'm doing my literary projects or I'm navigating the world. It's part of me just wants to make sure that others are involved or or at least know what's happening so they can choose to to be included if they want to be. And it makes me really happy to think that like we're there for each other. But I think that's just what I saw my mom do. And so I, I like to do that.
1: Wow. Shout out to your mom and beautiful reflection on just this idea of community, right? Which I think... From your whole story as you're talking about it, that's the one thing I'm picking up is just this power of community that our Latino community just naturally does, right? This power of we're better together, this power of the value of seeing and talking to your family, of spending that quality time and not being alone, like... It is so beautiful to hear you talk about it. And you mentioned your literary projects. Let's talk about what's your love story with literature. Like I want to know all about just, we're going to get to Latinx poetics, but I want to know where's the root of that love story with literature?
0: Well, I think it started from, it, it all happened kind of around the same time between the ages of 10 and 12. There was this desire to just not feel so alone as a young person. I wanted to connect with others my age. And middle school is not always a great place for that. I was like, this Oh, the small trauma kid, that I just felt you know?
1: <laughs> thinking <laughs> about middle school. Oh, Lord. Yes, you're totally right.
0: <laughs> yeah, it can be awful. And I was growing up, I was trying to figure things out. And I was in English class in uh, middle school. And I remember telling my mother about it. And she just pulled out this book of poetry by Pablo Neruda. And I still have it on my shelf.
1: Oh my God, that's my favorite poet. Yes. I love him. Chilean poet. Amazing. Amazing.
0: That's right. Chilean poet. Yeah. And my mother started telling me about my grandfather, her like great grandfather, like way back. She said that he was an educator and a writer. And now as an adult, I've done like all this research and uh, I have, and, and she was right. There are artists and writers in my family history. But at the time when she gave me this book, she was just like, oh, here, read this. You might, it might be something you're interested in. Cause I think I was probably really excited when I came up to her and said, well, oh, this is what we're doing in class. Like kids do when they come home from school. So for the next few years, like middle school through early high school, I started keeping notebooks and just like a diary. And my mother bought me, she literally bought me something called my diary. I still have it somewhere. So she recognized (laughs) that this was something that I needed. So that's where the writing, like the process of writing comes from. And, but it wasn't until that I understood like, oh, what I'm doing is poetry. This is poetry, but it wasn't until senior year of high school that our English teacher was like, oh, there's this extra credit assignment. The LA Times just started this contest called the Cesar Chavez Essay Poetry Contest. And she said, I'll give you all extra credit if you just turn something in. And everyone wrote whatever they were going to write, turned it into her. And I was like, I don't need that extra credit. I don't, I'm not going to turn <laughs> it in. So I didn't turn it in. But a friend of mine was like, did you turn in your work today? And I was like, No. And she's like, why not? I, you were working on it. I saw you working on it. And she's like, let me see it. And so I let her see it. And I forgot that I'd given it to her. And like time goes by and she's, oh, I sent your work in, by the way. And I was like, what? You, she, she submitted the piece on my behalf and I ended up winning. I won the contest. And it was oh, like, wow. what? This is just <laughs> crazy. A
1: shout yeah, out to I your friend. That's a real friend. Isn't that crazy?
0: Oh, she,
1: wow!
0: yeah. Yeah. And I still talk to her today. She's, she's like a military like person. Like she just, she went and joined the military and just, she's like a lifer. Like she's in there forever. But can I know um, what
1: you wrote about yeah. in that essay? Throwback. It was, it was like,
0: <laughs> yeah, it was like, I wish I still had it because I think about it um, every now and then it was, it was like a poem slash essay about, about, deforestation like it was about at the time i was really into the the amazon and the mm-hmm. loss of the amazon through business or agriculture or whatever it was at the time that was causing the rainforest to shrink and so it was about like i the, the piece was in the voice of an ancient tree and the tree was like i see like my aunt, uncles and cousins like dying around me like it was like that kind of story oh, and it was wow. about deforestation yeah.
1: Beautiful. That reminded me of Lord of the Rings where the trees come alive. <laughs> yes. That's like the yes. one scene that's like imprinted in my mind. That's so beautiful. And your, your love for science and writing kind of like in one. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: Thanks. Beautiful. Yeah. It was, it was an interesting moment. And so that really shifted everything. Like at that moment, I was just like, oh, I know how to write. Like I can write. People are recognizing this. And wouldn't it be great to just do this for the rest of my life?
1: How how did that land for your for your mom? I'm curious. When you told her I wanna write for the rest of my life, was she like go do a Ruben or did she was she like Ruben O sea para Alto? Is this what you wanna do? Like how did that land?
0: Surprisingly well. I my sisters would say that my mother spoiled me. And I and she probably did. I was the youngest. I'm the only like male and like that's a thing that that a lot of You know, Latin American countries really mothers love their sons, right? We do. Latina
1: moms (laughs) love their Latino sons. Yes. (laughs)
0: But yeah, so she knew I was a quirky child.
1: She knew, like,
0: I wanted to do unconventional things in my life, and she was like, "That's why we came to this country. So you could do whatever you want to do." And and so she she just she's like, all right, let's go. I
1: heard this somewhere and it said the best thing a parent can do is allow their son, daughter, child to play. And I am hearing this and I'm just smiling because it reminds me so much of that quote of like your mom just letting you play. And letting you do, like you just said, doing, letting you do whatever you want. Because that's why she went to that country. That's why she made all those sacrifices so that you can live your life the way you want to live it. And the fact that she took you to I un payaso, like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and even if you went through with it for the rest of your life or you did it for that one little moment, she allowed you to just play and experiment and do Just do the stuff that maybe you wouldn't be able to do if you were in Costa Rica, right? That's Mm -hmm. beautiful. I love your mom. Shout out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a moment that feels so small in like my upbringing, but I mean, you're absolutely right. I I talked to friends who, when they told their parents they wanted to be a writer or like an artist or an actor, a lot of them were just like, their parents were, freaking out like they're like how are you gonna make how are you gonna survive how are you gonna make a living Mm -hmm. and I don't ever remember that being a concern for my mother and yeah it was like that same like just easygoing nature like just be happy yeah
1: (laughs) there you go (laughs) it always connects back that is so beautiful I am so curious when you decided to be a writer what were, what were those first few moments like? Because I think writing is a very vulnerable thing, especially poetry. very vulnerable thing. To this day, I don't share a lot of my poetry with a lot of people, and that's something that I think will come with time. But how were those diff- how were those like first moments being in the literature world and being a writer? Did it come easy? Was it vulnerable? Was it hard? Was it not what you expected? Tell me about those first experiences.
0: It feels, I mean, it still feels so new, Uh, even though I've been doing it. I've been active in the community 15, 20 years, maybe. and, And it feels like it always feels very fresh to me, but I remember, I remember being in grad school, I went and ended up getting a bachelor's degree in creative writing, I went to UC Riverside. So I stayed in the LA area. And I remember thinking, oh, I can go get a master's degree in creative writing. And at the time I had my bachelor's and I was working. Like I, I went and work. I was a store manager at Starbucks for like six years. And, and I just thought, I miss being in school. And I thought, well, I want to write. And so when I started grad school, I kept working and then I realized I don't need to be working. Like I can just write and live in this like academic space where all that matters is like what I produce. And it was so weird. Like it was, I'd never known anyone else to do anything like this. Like it was uncharted territory, like for me, for anyone in my family. And it felt so freeing to think all I have to do is just read and write and then share it with people, share it with students. And it was, I don't know, it was like, it was so unexpected. When I first started publishing and I was in grad school, publishing like a poem here and there, it was like, it was unbelievable. Like it was weird to think, here's like a page in this book. That's there's my name. There's I wrote that. Even today, it's just unimaginable. It's still very unbelievable to me that I do this. It's I never imagined it as a kid. I never imagined I'd go to the library and there'd be a book that I wrote on the shelf. When my family started reading my work, that's when it got a little bit weird.
1: (laughs) Really? Oh, tell me about it. (laughs)
0: So like my first book came out in 2011 and my sisters were the first to read it. Cause my mom says she doesn't read English or speak English, mm-hmm. but my sisters will tell me otherwise, like when I'm not around, she does it. And so I don't know if she's, has she read my book, my poems? I don't know. But my sisters certainly have. And I remember one of them being very upset and was like, we never did that. Who's, we, Who who is this in this poem? Like we never did this. Abuela well, never said that, and I was like, "Hold on, this is writing is not always real. Like it's it can be fiction." And so, I felt like I had to say that a lot to them. I had to remind yeah. them that I'm gonna stretch the I'm gonna stretch
1: things around every now and then.
0: And it's but also one my experience, what just,
1: right? Like, even if you're in the same household, you have different experiences in the way that you perceive things and feel things. Like that's always. I grew up young at six seven. I think that's the one thing that I've learned is we all have very different experiences and feelings of same situations we went through.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was like, this is my experience. This is what I remember. But the first book that came out was, it was scary because, you know, like I, you're, you write about things that you write about things that maybe you only tell like a priest. And so there I'm putting it <laughs> on paper. <laughs>
1: Right. Well, that's why I'm like, it's such a vulnerable thing to write and to put it out there. And the fact that you do it and dedicate your life to it and you've been doing it for 15, 20 years. I'm curious now looking back at your career, what's for all the writers who are listening or people who are stepping into this vulnerable space, what's the one thing that you would tell them as words of consolation as they enter these vulnerable spaces?
0: Oh, Uh, there's so many people doing this or who want to do this that I think that it can burn people out because there's so many people who want a life as a poet or a life as a writer that they may send work out and maybe they never get published for years. And that has happened. I know that feeling. where when is someone going to read my work or put it in a book? And it took a long time for that to happen. This is what you want don't ever give up. I always say it's a marathon. And if you're the last one standing, then you're the one who's going to get published. Just mm. keep doing it. Keep showing up. Just keep showing up. And and over time, like you'll find your place in that world. There's mm-hmm. a place for you. You just have to like kind of squeeze your way into it. <laughs> and it just takes
1: time. Tell me about, you have it in the background, tell me about Latinx Poetics. What was the inspiration behind beginning that project and what did it turn into?
0: Yeah, man, this project has been like on my mind for decades. When I first started going to school, I almost never read any creative work by anyone from Latin America. Like I had the Neruda book that my mom gave me, but to say that I read other Latinos or Latin American writers, like it, it almost never happened. And so I remember talking to a teacher of mine and saying, are there any anthologies or where can I read more stuff about, about me? I want to see myself mm-hmm. in these poems, in these stories. And I think at the time there was The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been introduced to a poet named Gary Soto. Gary Soto has been publishing since the 80s and 90s. He's a poet and also a a children's story writer. But there was nothing, nothing collected by Latino poets or Latino writers. And over the last 20 years, there have been anthologies that have come together. I would say maybe more like over the last 10 years, there have been a Mm -hmm. lot of anthologies of Latino poets and writers. But my anthology is a collection of essays about Poetry, and like this is the first time this has ever been put together. And and I that this particular idea came from a book that I was introduced to in grad school. That was a collection of essays about poetry that were written by all these old dead white people. And (laughs) of
1: course, (laughs) yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously, they they were influential. To everybody that studied in the US and and maybe abroad, T.S. Eliot, William Carlos Williams, and but there was nothing that spoke to my experience. And in that collection, it was like by chance, there was one essay in there by Julia Alvarez. And Mm -hmm. in it, she's, I never read anyone like that had my story. And so I wanted to be that person. And I was like, she's saying exactly what I'm saying. And so probably about 10 years ago, I started talking to other poets about, would you ever write, have you ever written about poetry, like your process, like where it all comes from? And a lot of them hadn't, like they'd never thought about it. And I said, I'm thinking about putting something together. Like, I want to know what everyone's thinking. Like, I want to know everyone's experience with poetry. And so here I am like like wrangling people to get involved (laughs) because I want everyone involved. And so I asked like tons of people. And, and I got 24 people to write something. And that's what this book is. It's 24 essays about poetry. And it's written by people who are alive and writing and living their lives as writers and poets.
1: What happened when you put it out? Did I just want to know that experience when you finally put those essays and you published it and it was available to your students, to people, to anyone to purchase or, or look at or read. What was that feeling for
0: you? It was relief. Uh, oh, <laughs> the project took five years or more to put together. And oh, it was wow. a lot of time, a lot of work. And I was like, oh, it's out. So now, now what was my concern was like, I want to get as many people looking at this book and reading this book and putting this book on their shelf as possible. Like all these people have trusted me with their work and now oh. they deserve to be read. And so I was relieved that the project was done, but now, now I was like, how am I going to get this into people's hands? And I hired a publicist. I'd never done that before. As a poet, you don't really, you don't really have, you don't have an agent. You don't have a manager. Like poets are like scrappy. Like it's kind of sad, but like they, it's for the love. You do it for the love of the work. And Mm -hmm. so I was able to get a lot of people, a lot of organizations interested in the book. And so here and go. The Poetry Foundation, which is like a huge organization for poetry, they created an event for me and flew in like from all over the country, 10 contributors because they were only, they're 24, but 10, it it was was a big event with 10. And so that was like amazing. And yeah, in April, the Smithsonian put together an event. And so I was able to have an event at the Smithsonian in April. Amazing. Okay. Hair know. flip.
1: That that deserves a hair flip. I know you don't have a lot of <laughs> hair. Just throw your head back. That's so fire. Can you share maybe a story from the book that you maybe resonated with you or that maybe has gotten a lot of love from readers or even share something that you've written yourself, but would love to just get a little snippet of what to expect from Latinx Poetics.
0: Yeah, there's an essay that I always come back to, and it was it's written by it's written by a poet that lives in San Diego. Hello. No. <laughs> yeah. His name is Blas Falconer, and Blas is Puerto Rican. And the essay is about his grandmother and how his grandmother introduced him to poetry. And he remembers growing up with her and being in the kitchen and cooking and her reciting poetry. And he introduced she introduced him to a form called La Plena. And La Plena is a form that's popular in Puerto Rico. And and so the, the essay is about, it's not only about like his grandmother and, and the introduction to poetry, but it's about this poetic form and how poetry is really valuable to the Puerto Rican culture. And so we mm-hmm. get a little personal history, a little bit of poetry history. Um, so mm-hmm. that's probably one of my favorite essays in the book.
1: That's yeah. so beautiful. Oh. I know we're running out of time, but how can people find the book, buy the book, find you, connect with you, etc.?
0: Sure. Well, if I can say yesterday, I found out that my book won an award.
1: <gasps> w- what? Yes. What's the award? The award, so we can celebrate with you.
0: They're called the Ippies, I-P-P-Y, the Independent Publisher Awards. Yes. Oh
1: my God.
0: They give That's out awards. Amazing. Yeah. So my book won the gold medal for anthologies.
1: Wow. Congratulations. Oh, this is what our community can do. And I, one of the many reasons why I love the platform is because you meet people like you, Ruben, who are doing what you love, doing what you're passionate about, uplifting community with you. And that's what gets you those gold medals, that praise, that love, those awards, that Smithsonian doing events for you. It's such a proud moment as someone that's part of the Central American Latino community with you, that you're out here doing incredible work that's rooted in your passion, but it's also about community and representation and something so much deeper. So thank you, Ruben, for the work that you're doing. Oh,
0: you're going to make me cry. Thank you. you. <laughs> Well, people can go to my website, RubenQuesala.com, and learn all about my book and order it, get the order information through there. But it's from the University of New Mexico Press, and it's still available. So I'm just really proud of it. Thank you.
1: So proud of you. I want to close with a beautiful brindis and I have my cafecito here. And I know you have your iced coffee. I want to give you the space, Ruben. What do you want to cheers to, and what do you want to manifest for our Latino community?
0: To to everyone's success and to upholding each other through good and bad times. I think it's important for us to be with each other, and so to to community.
1: To community, salud, cheers,
0: salud,
1: y pura vida, (laughs) pura vida. Thank you, Ruben. Again, oh my God. So really just can't tell you enough how beautiful it is to see someone in the community doing what they love, doing it well. And again, just doing it for the community. We need more Rubens in the world.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank y'all for tuning in to Hello Latino to learn more about Ruben and all the amazing work that he's doing. Follow him on LinkedIn, Ruben Quesada, Twitter, Instagram. Search it up and you'll find him or check out the show notes. And I'll see y'all next week for more Cafecito and Cheese For all Hello Latino updates, follow Hello Latino podcast on Instagram, or you can find me on LinkedIn. There's more information on my website, odalisjasmine.com. con mucho, mucho amor, tu amiga hondureña.